0: Welcome to Adapter's Advantage, breakthrough moments that lead to success. Our podcast brings you insider stories of the moments that mattered, turning points on the sometimes rocky road to success. Here's your host, Mark Magnaca, president and co founder of Alego, the workforce training and readiness platform built for distributed teams. Hi, I'm Mark Magnaca.
1: Welcome to the Adapter's Advantage podcast. I'm excited to have Tim Murray as my next guest. Tim is a, the CEO of Cardinal Virtues Consulting, which is a new company that he has started after more than 20 years of experience uh, as an executive and uh, in executive leadership at a number of different organizations. He's got a wide array of financial experience, and he's implemented many different types of change management programs. We're going to dive into that in just a moment. He was with uh, Aluminum Bahrain, also known as ALBA, for 12 years, and he was the CEO for the last seven. Um, He's also held the roles of Chief Financial Officer, Chief Marketing Officer, Chief Supply Chain Officer. So he's really had experience across the organization. Under Tim's leadership, ALBA successfully executed a $3 billion project called Line 6. He did this on time and, importantly, significantly under budget. Line 6 transformed Alba into the world's largest smelter, with the exception of China, with annual sales turnover of approximately $2.7 billion. Tim is credited with transforming Alba's safety culture and the implementation of what was called Project Titan, a cost improvement program, which improved Alba's bottom line by over $300 million. There's some big numbers that we're gonna be getting into in this interview. Tim's an avid reader. He's created many customized leadership workshops from the books that he reads, and he's also an adjunct professor at Susquehanna University, where he teaches classes on the impact of CEO leadership. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, uh, I'm i very much looking forward to the podcast. I'm, we're all getting used to the new Zoom environment, and I like this, that you're working in some video. This is more an advanced podcast. Thank you.
1: Now what's interesting is I I just finished reading a Harvard Business Review case study called Managing a Blackout about an incident that happened in 2017 that um, we're going to get into in more detail. The opening quote from this Harvard Business Review case study says, quote, we have to forget about what happened and focus our efforts on recovery. We will be measured on how we recover, so we must make it as safe and as fast as possible to turn it into a success story. I think this quote is not only relevant for what happened at ALBA under Tim's leadership, but it really sets the stage for this larger conversation we're going to be having on lessons that our listeners can learn from, both around (laughs) adaptation, around recovery, and about doing so in a safe manner that's particularly relevant in this post-pandemic environment. So Tim, before we get into that, I think the way that you ended up in the role as CEO is a is a fascinating story. So can we start with what was the background for you being in the automotive industry to end up uh, with an aluminum company in Bahrain?
2: Sure, it it is a you know the story. It is it is a very interesting story. So so I was working in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was working for a company called ARC Automotive, which is a airbag system. So. The company made airbag products. It was about a $250 million company. And at that time, I was the CFO. I had been there almost, it was like nine, nine, 10 years. So anybody who's worked in the automotive industry, it's a, let's just say, it's not a very glamorous industry. It's a very cutthroat, very tough. Uh, When times are are good, things are okay. And when times are bad, they're very bad. Um, So I've been there 10 years. We had factories all around the world. I was in China, I was in Mexico, I was in Europe. I travel a lot. And I was really just kind of tired of it. So so I started looking for another job and with the, the objective of getting out of the automotive industry. And this is an interesting story for your listeners, because when you're in an industry for you know an extended period, it's it's hard to switch. So I went when I talked to all the headhunters, it was like, oh, well, you're an automotive guy. You're an automotive guy. You're an auto. I'm like, I don't want to be an automotive guy. I would like to get out. I want to do something different. I was sick of automotive. I mean, I had good background. I had just finished my MBA from Vanderbilt. Um, so I was ready to do something different. So anyway, so I'm a big reader, as you mentioned. So I read the magazine called The Economist. And if anybody reads The Economist, they have usually a section in the back that has all these crazy job offers working for the IMF or World Bank or international this. So there was a job that said Middle East uh, expats manufacturing financial executive. Okay? Didn't say where, didn't even say what the industry was, this said manufacturing. Um, so I told my wife about it. We we were kind of open to an international stint at that time. I was 36. Uh, my kids were six and three, so they were you know they were a good age to move. Um, so anyway, I responded. I really didn't expect anything. Uh, that was early in 2006. I didn't get a response for probably about three months. I got this strange phone call from a from a London headhunter, uh, and the lady had a very very heavy British accent, and she was telling me, "Oh, it was an ad in the Economist," and you know we go through it, and I said, "Okay, yeah, I kind of remember." And she says, Well, it's, it's in Bahrain. I said, Well, where's Bahrain? Because I had no idea. Where <laughs> Bahrain. <laughs> uh, and I literally, as I was talking to her, I was like on the internet Googling Bahrain. I see, OK, right. It's right off the east coast of Saudi Arabia. So I'm not so sure how my wife's going to like that. I think she was thinking more London or Paris is the next bad assignment. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> and then she said, It's in the aluminum industry, or as we say over there, aluminium. Uh, I've become more accustomed to saying aluminium which is how it is on the periodic table, by the way, it is proper aluminum. So, so anyway, I had a couple of phone interviews. Uh, that I, and at first I was kind of like, nothing's gonna come of this. Cause when I was a young guy, I had no experience in the industry. Um, and for the position Alba at that time was about a $2 billion company today, they're about 2.7 of a figure, but um, it was a big jump in terms of, you know, going from a little small automotive parts manufacturer to, you know, a giant company. So but anyway the process to, to make a long story kind of short uh we all got uh to flown to london there was five of us who made the final round this was in september so now we're going from january now we're into september uh i flew to london i had probably a 15-minute interview with the gentleman who was the acting ceo at the time who was already a gentleman named Ahmed naimi <laughs> wow. so so that little ad from the economist that i read you know blind ad, sent an email in with a cv uh, almost a year later Led to this offer. So then I'm like, I mean, I was not expecting that. I was, I was curious. Yeah, like,
1: so Did you ever think that all the other people like had had either dropped out or like they were gone by that point?
2: I don't know. So I was just like, <laughs> no, so you totally
1: to persevering.
2: Yeah, I'm like, uh, you know, maybe I, I was being cool with her and like, okay, that, you know, let me get out this. And I, I still want to come visit. She said, oh, no, yeah, for sure, you can come visit. So anyway, we went through kind of the formalities, negotiated kind of the package. So basically, it was mine to come visit and decide. So, so, but it was really, I was like, you want to talk about a, what we call a backdoor curveball. That was the ultimate one. Uh, did, I didn't see the spin on that one coming. So, uh,
1: and that, so that anyway, job, going, just remind me that job was, that wasn't the CEO yet. That was the, the role that you that, initially took. Uh,
2: no, yeah, this was, uh, it was called the general manager of finance and legal. So I would, in a, in a, U.S. term, it would be more like a controller level, kind of like a lower VP level um but again it was a much bigger company i mean this is we're going from 250 million company to two billion dollar company. so you're going overseas and kind of an expat assignments i'm like wow this will be really interesting so but i had never been there and i never worked in the industry so it was kind of shocking so so anyway so a couple weeks later i flew to bahrain uh to visit uh, you know, and it was nice. I mean, it was it was, you know, I had traveled enough not to, you know, believe in all these perceptions of the world, but, You know, because we as Americans, most of us don't travel. So we think, oh, the world's dangerous. It's the Middle East. It's terrorists. And you know, I get there. You know, they have balls like us, shopping centers. We have P.F. Changs. We have Johnny Rockets. We have The Gap. We have movie theaters. Um, everybody spoke English. This was one of my biggest concerns. Yeah. Everybody speaks English fluently. Um, so there's really no barrier. Um, and if you look at the Bahrainis, I mean, they're really it was the nicest place I've lived, the nicest people. Uh, they're very welcoming, very accommodating, very into you, your family, uh, what you do. You know, they're a different pace of life than we're used to at the go, go, go American style, you know? So-
1: and, and, there's, and, and so there's the Bahraini culture, but a lot of the Bahraini culture now is also informed, like in the United States, by immigrants from other parts of the world. So it really sure. is kind yeah. of a global environment.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a total melting pot. You have, uh, again, 1.5 million people, about, I think, 700,000 are Bahraini. The rest, the other half are, you know, workers from all, level, uh, all levels, all nationalities. My kids went to an international school. And to give you an idea of the international perspective, they had, uh, when they would have their international day, you know, where you would wear your national dress or costumes, uh, we would have 40 different nationalities in the school. Wow. So imagine that, forty different nationalities. So it wasn't. So to go there. School, so, yeah. Yeah. It was a great visit. Uh, I mean, I was just there for a week, looked at housing, looked at schooling. Um, so I accept, accepted the job, signed the offer there, uh, flew back. Uh, you know, and you know, just gave my resignation, and then like a month later, I started. So, uh, but it was. I mean, it was <laughs> a very strange process. Having lived in the Middle East for twelve years, I, I fully understand the process now, and Ramadan, and how things go slow and. Uh, we don't do quick decisions, and there's a lot of bureaucracy. And then all of a sudden, there's a quick decision. Uh, but being an American at the time, that was not used to that. It was it was a bit of a jolting experience. So, so that's how I ended up in Bahrain. Not your not your typical. uh I went to CareerBuilder or monster.com
1: you know one of the takeaways from that is you just never know where an opportunity is going to take you, right? And I think kind of keeping an open mind, and once you're clear on what you want. Um, having the patience to sort of stick it out is a big part of it. So let's pivot to this uh, piece that's gonna set the stage for this learning culture that I witnessed firsthand. What would you say was the biggest challenge you faced as an American CEO as you rose up the ranks from that initial uh, kind of controller-like position and um, you get to be CEO and you have this management team and you have factory workers, and they're comprised of all these different people, not just Bahrainis, but as we mentioned, from multiple different cultures. What's the biggest challenge an American CEO faces from your perspective in that situation?
2: So, what, when I came, I mean, just uh, initially, the biggest challenge was okay, you're moving to a new country. I mean, it's 6,000 miles from the United States, different culture. Uh, the company is a giant company, okay two point seven billion in sales uh today it 's about fifteen percent of the g d p of the country so I mean, if you think in the United States, there is no company that is fifteen percent only the government maybe i guess the government right. <laughs> particularly yeah. with the spending today.
1: yeah that 's right
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh it was a much bigger company, so you know you're you 're in this giant company uh kind of under the radar you know you 're in the newspaper. You know, people say you work for Alba. The whole country knows who Alba is. You have huge employment. You know, we have about 4,000 people, including contractors in the plant. Um, you know, I'm going from a plant of, say, six, 700 people. Um, so for me, that was a big shift. I was, uh, you know, just the young guy going there. So, but if we fast forward to CEO, okay, I've been there five years. I came in 2007, and then I got promoted uh, in 2012. So, okay, so I'm still relatively young, 41, so. Uh, and this is another lesson, I think, for your listeners. You know, when you go overseas, your ability to accelerate your career is, is much faster. Uh, you know, imagine I'm 41 and I become CEO of a $2.7 billion company. That never happened in the United States. I'd be lucky if I was 60 if I got that chance. Yeah, maybe, may
1: maybe in technology, but definitely not in heavy industry like yeah, that.
2: Definitely not in heavy industry or, or a big corporate type structure. So, uh, so, you know, you get opportunities you probably wouldn't get in the United States much earlier in your career. Uh, I was a product of kind of the restructuring, uh, 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis. We did a lot of restructuring. We brought in a company, a company known as McKinsey. Most people know McKinsey. Um, you know, we did broad restructuring, change things. Like, and this is when I got to do all those roles you mentioned. I was in charge of marketing, I was in charge of purchasing. So, so an advantage when I, when I was promoted, I had been there five years. So, so I knew the culture. I kind of knew what you could do, couldn't do. So I think that helped me, but again, the biggest challenge at the time uh, we weren't making a lot of money. Metal prices were low. We had a bad safety performance. We were having a lot of injuries. We were even having some fatalities—very uh, horrible things. So that was my number one objective. And here I am. Okay, I'm a finance guy, right? So I'm a young guy. I'm a finance guy. How's the finance guy, I get to fix safety. Um, so that was a very big challenge when I first started um, to get get safety kind of back on track. Which today, fortunately, would Alba um, has great safety performance now, but so those were the biggest things. And then also being uh I think that young guy, because people looked at me before as okay, he was kind of the young American. All right, now he's the CEO. And so and I can tell you, when you become a CEO, it's very different. Uh I had done all the functions. I pretty much knew everything about the company. And so when I went into the chair, I wasn't really worried about, okay, well, I know I know everything. But when you're the boss, you know, the buck stops with you, right? the buck stops here. So so it wasn't like, oh, you know, go ask the CEO what he thinks, or go over and see what the CEO thinks. No, now you're the CEO, so and you're responsible. And so when you think about, you know, safety, taking you know, these fatalities we we're having, you're responsible. You know, what I mean, and I've seen several fatalities. It's a horrible thing, and having to see the family and having to see the wife. And these are horrible things, and you know, you're the guy in charge. That monkey is now on your back, um, and so in terms of you're in charge, you you know, the buck stops with you. So you being the CEO, it's very different than you're in a lower level position you know at the end of the day you're in charge and you're the one who's going to be held accountable by the board
1: and there's a critical distinction here Tim unlike in the military where there's a un, there's a contract in effect that when you sign up for the military you recognize that in an all volunteer army that you put your life at risk particularly in a combat situation but generally speaking when you go to work you don't think of that you don't think no. about the fact that for most jobs that 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 uh there's this level of uh, risk that's involved.
2: To give you an idea, Alba is three square miles, okay? And so you say three square miles. So I tried to find something to make that uh, uh, applicable. So I'm, I'm a big Yankees fan, as, as Mark knows. Uh, yes. So if you took three, three Yankee stadiums, that would be the size of Alba.
1: Wow. To wow. give you an yeah. idea. So,
2: so think of a major league baseball park times three. That's the, site, the size of the facility. Oh.
1: So Tim, one of the things I remember I was talking about from when we first started talking on the beach, I gave you a copy of So What? And you said, you know what? I think I'm gonna give this to my managers, which you did. And then you invited me to come to Bahrain to talk, uh, to do a keynote and, and a multi-day trainings for your team on this whole concept. And then I realized when I got there that there was literally, you'd help them create a library and there was a book club and there was this whole culture that had been established that didn't I- exist before on reading. So what was the initial reaction that you got when you introduced, hey, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to start reading books here at Alba.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, it was interesting. So, as uh, again, as a big reader, when I came, became CEO, I was like, okay, there were some things I wanted, concepts I wanted to translate. So, and I felt just, and what I would do is I would have basically these one-day offsites, And so I would give what I, what I would call baby books, uh, I would give the, the the management team, and this would be a group of about 50 people, kind of our senior management team, the book. I give them a month to read it, and then we'd have a workshop. So the first, very first one I did was called The Five Temptations of the CEO. Uh, it's by Patrick Lencioni. Highly recommend it. One of the very best management books I've ever read. It's yes. a very simple book. You probably, you know, a, a good reader will finish it in two or three hours. It's a little fable story, and there's basically... The premise is there's these five temptations that every CEO faces. It's uh, status over results, popularity over accountability, conflict over harmony, certainty over clarity, and invulnerability vulnerability over trust. So he boils down being a manager to those five temptations, which I think are very good, by the way. It's a very simple way. So I gave it to my staff, and I'm CEO, right? So I'm the boss. Um, and I gave them a month to read it. We had an offsite, and we get there, and I would say at least half the people didn't read the book.
1: And they, I'm just curious. Do you think did they think you wouldn't know?
2: You know, I think they no. I I don't think I I because I we had never done it. I think they just assumed it was like any other kind of management offsite. There's right. Gonna be you some, were going to
1: talk. They would listen.
2: I'll talk. There's going to be some group activities, and then we're going to read. But but I actually run the offsite, so so I'm going through, and you know, we start. I get Okay, well, what did you think of this? You know, and I was getting blank stares here in the headlights, and I'm like. All right. And then I, then I was, then I was, then I got upset and I said, okay, raise your hand if you read the book. Okay. And if you didn't read the book, you weren't raising your hand, right? Because then you were going to get tortured. if You did. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was just like, okay, well, we're going to go through this. Uh, and I said, you know, I see I'm very upset with this. this. This is, this better not ever happen again. Because I'm the boss, right? Imagine, yeah. imagine you, you, you have this power. I'm the CEO. I could fire you and you didn't read my book and you come to an offsite. So but to show you, like, that's just this culture of reading, I mean, it's not just there, it's everywhere. Today, we do not read. I mean, okay, we get a blip, we get a notification, we get Instagram, we get Snapbook, we get Facebook, all these things. But we don't take the time to read. And, and to me, it's a loss. I think it's a shame. It's a lost art. Because to read a book, it, I mean, like, one, when you read it, that's all you think about, right? And you can't just read a chapter or just an article. Or I mean, you really need to get into a book. So, anyway. Um, so then the next one. So then we had the next uh, workshop. I forget what the next book was. I forget what I did. I think I did. I think I did. Who moved my cheese? Okay, very simple one, right? Uh, and so okay. So then now I put I learned. So I put in some enforcement criteria. So so they were given the book. Uh, I think it was six weeks ahead. I gave them more time. Then each week they had to tell my secretary what page number they were on. They're, at the end of the week, they had to send her an email to say that I'm on page whatever, whatever it is uh then prior to the off-site they had to come uh because we would give out t-shirts and hats to the offsite site as part of the team uh so to get your t-shirt and hat uh my secretary her name was janita janita would ask them a few questions about the book and if they couldn't answer those questions they didn't get their t-shirt and hat and they didn't come to the offsite. Wow! and well, from that day forward that was the enforcement and you know and the reality is if i didn't do that they wouldn't do it i mean there would be some that would but it had, I had to make it very painful and almost like, you know, a kindergartner that, you know, signed this and this is what page number you're on and, but otherwise they wouldn't be disciplined enough to do it themselves. Uh, and then they'd wait till the last that was, minute. That was in so, the beginning.
1: That was in yes. the beginning though, right? So then what happened? Like, cause it, 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 in terms of the evolution, by the time I was there um and I, you know, with the shirts and the meeting and people read, like, it seemed like it, the approach did work because people did start reading the books and being able to talk. yeah, I
2: think they realized one. I wasn't giving, I was giving them good books as I would tell people. I'm like, I've read hundreds of books. I'm only giving you the very best of the best. And I think they did have fun at the workshop. They understood it. It helped them. And it was nice because actually they would take the books, they would share them with their family or their kids.
1: One of the takeaways for our listeners is a concept called uh easy, hard now, easy later. And what, what you're, what you heard uh, as Tim just described this, it was hard. Like he had to use all of the power of the title in terms of that role, as well as sort of his personal energy to corral people to get this thing started. So it was hard in the beginning, but then there was a certain momentum and then people began to realize, especially as, as so many of them started to get their MBA, like if you wanna be someone who's respected in this culture you have to be educated on the topic at hand. Otherwise, you have no right to even really be contributing to the conversation. So by right. the time well, I got there, I, I saw that there were so many eager people who wanted to learn. You know, They didn't want to just sit back in their chair and sort of observe. They recognized, like you said, that they're working for one of the pre- preeminent companies in the country, responsible for 15% of the GDP. And to compete in that marketplace, you better be executing on, on great ideas like that. So it's against that backdrop. It's in that you come in and, um, and and as you said, there were fatalities that happened with the previous CEO. What happened when you basically put down the gauntlet and said, I want to have a work environment where there are zero fatalities? Not two or three is acceptable, but zero. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, so as you mentioned, the safety concept it's it's around the world. It is very different wherever you go, um, and it wasn't that we safety wasn't a priority. But like at Alba, Alba is a fifty-year-old company, this giant company, fifteen percent of GDP. Again, three square miles. I mean, we had well-established systems, processes. Uh, you know, but what we do as a process is inherently dangerous. You have hot liquid metal at nine hundred sixty degrees C, which is almost two thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, moving around big vehicles, big cranes, you know. So if you don't follow the procedures, you know, you can get killed. Uh, I mean, so it's it's serious. So I think that problem we had was it was in the mindset of of a compliance mindset versus really believing or ownership. And so it was a big challenge because I again I come in, you know, and you know we, we had just had two months before it had our, our fifth fatality in less than three years. And so as CEO I'm like, you know, well, what do I do here? I mean, because like you know people were scared. Um, but you know, we had become an uns- you know, people you know didn't want to come work there. Uh, it was a dangerous place. Don't go work at Alba; you might get killed. Uh, and again, here's your kind of premier company, 15% of GDP, huge. You know, you know where it shouldn't be that. You know, it's, well, it should be the flagship versus this bad company to work for. So, so to get that, you know, that priority shift, it was tough. So at the time, we were having we had consultants in. Okay, so we had some consultants that were safety consultants, and they were good consultants. Uh, but as we know, with most consultants, when they come in, it's very easy to shift the responsibility of the consultants. They're happy to take the responsibility because you keep paying. Them. So uh, we had had these consultants for about a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. We had brought them in because we were having fatalities. So we brought in the best, one of the best consultants in the world. And, you know, it was and again, they, it's not that they were bad, but it was like the consultants here, it's their problem. Uh, and I firmly believe on safety. You cannot outsource safety. You can outsource a lot of things. But not safety, uh, and we didn't have the belief. Uh, we didn't, you know, own it. We didn't take the ownership. Um, and so, the second day I was CEO, I terminated the consultants. Okay, um, and I said, "There's no more consultant. There's no more safety consultants." And it was very interesting. So it was my decision, um, and my executives. Most of my executives at the time were against the decision. Uh, they all told me, "Don't do this. You're a new guy. You're a finance guy. Why are you taking this risk? They're gonna blame you. You know, we love to blame." Um, and I said no I said you know I am responsible and I said now we're all responsible I said so there's no more consultants and I said you know if we continue to have this you know maybe I'll be gone but you'll be gone too and so we're all gonna <laughs> be chip together and and so it really shook the organization because again again the power of the social media and the small environment you know they're like Tim 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 sacked the consultants today and they're like whoa and everybody was like okay they're serious because we had to shake it it had to be something drastic we couldn't just say oh we're going to do another workshop on safety or we're going to do another plant visit on safety when they realized okay and, and i can tell you my again my executives and my management team they knew they were responsible there was no more oh well the consultants here they'll do it and right. so right. i think shifting that <laughs> as i called it the monkey is now on our back there is no consultant to call blame you know it's us and and it really did change the perception of people that hey this guy's serious about safety I mean, he's he's taken he's taken it um the yeah, other thing we an
1: important need... important message in this part for our listeners is this these were preventable deaths
0: so oh, I all, all. <laughs> yeah.
1: right so, i mean it wasn't this wasn't a case like you know something um fell from the sky right and and killed someone like the guy in the case with, with the crucible Right? It, was, it was something that, in retrospect, could have been prevented. So that's what made it so tragic.
2: Right. Yeah, and all, I mean, if you look at, I would say, 98, 99% of the safety in, in, instances you have, it's behavioral. I mean, in this case, the guy was walking in an area he shouldn't have been. There was a coworker who was there who was supposed to be helping him. Both of them didn't do their jobs. They were doing the procedure. It, it happened. It shouldn't have happened, but they shouldn't have been in that place. So it, it, shouldn't, right. it shouldn't have been a fatality. So at Alba, one of the things I found, okay, after that, we started, one, we started doing uh, many more plant visits. Okay, and you may say, well, what's the big deal? You probably did plant visits before. Well, yes and no. Uh, executives typically didn't do them, uh, particularly the CEO. Okay, okay you know, this is a very big organization, very hierarchical. Uh, you know, you're the CEO, big corner office. Uh, you know, you, and you don't typically, you know, in the past, the CEO didn't typically leave his office much, and he didn't put on, you know, and this is you have to put on. A, we have a blue flame retardant uniform, heavy safety shoes, helmet, glasses. You know, so when you're going out into the plant, it's a whole, it's a whole process. And if you're there in the summer, I can tell you it's a very hot time to go into the plant when it's 110, 20 degrees. It's not you're you're not looking forward to doing plant visits in an ambient temperature and that kind of heat. So. So we started doing that. So that, that helped. I think people started to say, okay, they're serious. He's out here. And I found when people would see that, you know, you were really busting your butt, they would say, okay, I, you know, maybe, maybe he is serious. You know, you would see me physically out there early in the morning or on the weekend or uh, night visits. I don't have to do these things. Um, they, they saw there was some genuine care I think versus just, Oh, we're checking the box plant visit. Here's the report for tomorrow. Um, and I also found I used, uh, Some of the, you know, in in Bahrain, it's a Muslim culture. So, okay, so it's Islam. Uh, And one of our campaigns, our very first campaigns, we used this phrase called change starts with belief. Okay, and this is from the Quran, from the Holy Quran. And so we plastered it everywhere. And it really hit home. You know, and it would be in English English and Arabic. And, you know, and I I would build on that because really, you know, you had to believe it. It wasn't just, oh, Tim's here for a visit, or we're going to do this campaign you know, did you really believe in safety? Do you yeah. really care? Uh, and when you linked it to their religion, yes, yes. it was like, they're like, wow, you know, and, and I would tell people, it's like, you know, you, you want to come to work safely, work safe, go home safe, and be safe at home. You know, it's, it's not just, oh, you punch your badge, and okay, I'm an alba, I'm good, and then when I leave, I'm not. You know, either you believe or you don't believe, and you take that belief system to your children, and, and so... That was, and, and I wasn't like I planned that. It was just one of the guys said, uh, he said, yeah, change starts with belief. And I said, no, that's a good one. And he said, no, no that like,
1: is a good one. That, that, the beauty of it, that works regardless of what the religious or cultural yeah. background is, because it's right. true.
2: It's true. so And then the other big thing is we, prior to that, we had eight safety principles, okay, eight. So imagine trying to remember, and it was the management will take responsibility for safety in every aspect. Employees are expected to actually, you know, they, there were these really long sentences. Um, they were eight. These were something the consultant recommended. Uh, we and the theme around it was really we put a camel around it because it was the Middle East, which I think was my personal view was kind of offensive. Uh, so it was like more of a joke. They're like, oh, here comes the safety camel. Or, we're gonna have-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they're known as really safe animals anyway. I'm yeah. not sure what the connection is.
2: You know, and it, and but again, this is an example of the of the consultants not kind of being. I don't want to say respectful, but they didn't understand the culture because, you know, I was like, oh, we're in the Middle East, so let's use it. And it was an acronym. It was the use the CAMEL this. And so I, I immediately changed that. Uh, so we had three principles. Uh, they're very simple. Uh, the first one is ownership of every uh, safety is everyone's responsibility, number one. Working safely is a condition of employment. So if you don't work safe, you're out of here. And all workplace injuries and illnesses are preventable. Okay, And then we changed the symbol from a camel to a rocket. Okay, So we had a big rocket, like a rocket that shoots to the moon. And the rocket was meant to, uh, at the time, to be something speed, change, powerful. Hey, we're going to the moon. We're, we're, we're going to make zero injuries. That was, that was our, they right. were called the zero accident principles. Uh, so we had to go to the moon. So that was kind of the, the theory around it anyway. And I'm also a big, I'm a big October uh, Sky fan. If anybody's seen the movie, October Sky and Homer Hickam and the Rockets. So that's where I took it from. But, um, but it was simple and it was only three. Uh, we color coded it. So actually the first one was in all white. The second one was in all yellow and the second, and the third one was in all pink. You Imagine pink, pink and this big giant industrial plant smelter. And, and that, this was very interesting because the, the colors were more, they were meant to be more of like a shock. Hey, we see them, you know, particularly the yellow and the pink but as we went on i realized how much we link colors to things so particularly with our contractors where we had kind of a language barrier or some of them didn't even read and write um and so like when we would do a visit we you know we, one of the first things we would ask please give me the safety principles you know and they could do it in their language that was fine right. um but a lot of them would struggle but they would say okay it's the white one or the yellow one or the pink one which was fine to me yeah. like they, they they knew what it meant yeah. um, So making it, breaking it down in such a simplistic color-coded fashion, uh, it was powerful because if you look today, think of us as colors, you know, we link colors to things. So, okay, you just had a a baby, it was a baby boy, right, Mark?
1: Yeah, well, I had a baby boy and now I have a baby girl too, yeah.
2: So the baby girl, uh, what color did you paint her room? Um,
1: Well, we didn't paint it pink, but that would be the normal color. Pink?
2: All right, well, most people would paint it pink. Maybe you're a little bit different. Yep. All right, for the baby boy. Blue. blue. All yeah. right. uh, when you go to a traffic light and you see green, what do you do? You go. You go. When you see any safety or exit sign, what color is it? It's green.
1: Yeah.
2: Every road sign is green. Uh, you see red, the not like you stop. You see mm-hmm. yellow, you see orange. Caution, right? You see pink. Right. Oh, you have a girl. So these things, like these are drilled into our head, colors. So, yeah. so again, that was something, again, like, wasn't a plan thing, but Making it simple, my advice here, when you're doing big campaigns or big change management things, it has to be very simple. Very simple, they gotta be able to remember it. Again, put some, you know, you can put a color or a theme or a you know, the rocket, something linking it to it. It makes it much more impactful in terms of them remembering it and then getting their buying. Because you want, again, change starts with belief. You have gotta get them to believe it, not just it's a, it's a gimmick.
1: Um, you implemented a program to help Bahrainis in particular get an MBA where the company paid for them to get an MBA uh, somewhere in the UK or in the US. Um, what was the impetus of that and, and what was the reaction from the people who had that opportunity?
2: So yeah so the MBA so I'm a big believer in MBA so for those not familiar with it it's a master's in business administration so this is a graduate degree you would do after university or undergraduate. Uh, I, I have an MBA, so I did my MBA at Vanderbilt University, and it really, it really changed me. Uh, I did it when I was kind of, a, at that time, I was the controller of the group, and then a couple of years later, I became the CFO of the company. And, you know, when you look, you know, particularly take Alba, we have, you know, you know, it's this huge industrial company, and it's mostly engineers and operational people, okay, which is, you know, these people all grow up as operators and engineers, and you're, and you're running an industrial plant, a huge one, So, so this makes sense, but you know, they don't have a business mindset. I mean, so you look at Albus's giant company and you have all these divisions, which are businesses within businesses. And so these people, you know, you need to have these skills. So, so to build upon the reading culture, which I was doing that, I said, okay, let's pick the best of the best people um, and get them MBAs. And, and everybody, and this was not, everybody was kind of like, oh, look, was doing another, like the books and he wants MBAs and, and and until we had a couple classes actually graduate and come back, I don't think people really believed me. Then it was like, wow, I see so and so talking about you know return on investment or what was the impact of the Federal Reserve meeting or uh, we saw this in London or General Motors is closing the production here. This is going to impact foundry alloy business. And it took it took some time. Uh, right. Then it became it was interesting. Then it shifted to everybody in the company wanted to get an MBA. So we went from it being kind of a, a joke, Tim's pet program, to wow, this is, if you want to get ahead, you need to have this. Uh, and so by the time I left, I think we had around 60 MBAs either graduated or in, in process. So, uh, and basically when I was CEO, there was, or when I started, it
1: was one, it was me. It was one. But while line six was being constructed, line five, um, Had there was um, an incident that that Tim will tell you about that's covered in this Harvard Business Review report. But let's just give them the short version of what happened on April 5th, 2017 and and how you all right. So, April 5th, 2017.
2: So, I had just uh, been home in the US uh, for a couple days, I was home for Easter break. so, and anybody who's traveled to the Middle East, it's quite a long journey. It's about, it takes about a whole day between layovers and, you know, it's in flight time, it's probably 15 hours and then you have layovers and all that kind of stuff. So, say like 24 hours door to door. So, I mean, I just got home, you're getting jet lag, you got an eight hour time zone change. So, you're just getting yourself adjusted. Okay. I get a phone call uh, from the chief operations officer who was, who, was, who was acting for me. He was, you know, acting CEO at the time while I was away. I was supposed to be away for about three weeks. And um, you know, he's like, Hey, boss, we have a problem. I'm like, Okay, and he's like, You know, we lost power, and I'm like, Okay, I mean, we Alba, they give you an idea, Alba has four power stations, um, so. You, know, you have lots of what we'll call redundancy capacity and all these things. And in Alba, we have our own power stations because we're continuously supplying power to the pot lines 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You never stop a pot line. It's a continuous flow. You know? And so when he said it, I'm like, okay, well, which power station went out? You Because know, we have four. And within and within the power stations, you have multiple turbines. So normally it's one or two. It's a minor thing. You move the power from this over to here. You know, There's lots of flexibility. And he's like, no, we had all the power stations went out and we have a blackout. And I'm like, Okay. And then, then I'm like, now I'm really nervous because, it, it, and again, in our process, power is like, power is like the blood in the body. Okay. You, you, you have to have the blood and it's got to be pumping and it's got to be flowing. So if you stop the power for more than four hours, the whole plant stops the, the pots. What happens is they solidify. We call it a pot line freeze uh, because you have these giant pots you saw. Okay. You saw the video In each one of those pots, which is kind of like the size of a, think of a small boat hole, kind of that's what each one. In line six, we have 300 or what do we have? No, 424 pots. Okay. So, and it's a, it's a mile long. (laughs) So all these little pots are running with liquid metal, you know, bubbling in them, and you're feeding them. Okay. And then you take out the power. Okay. Without the power, they, they freeze, they solidify. And then, then it's, you know, six to nine months to recover. It's, it's disaster scenario. Okay. So one, we had never had this. We had never had a a blackout okay again we would lose power stations we have backup we can take uh, power from the government grid um so anyway so i'm like okay and so i'm like and he's explaining what happened i said okay let's forget about what happened i said uh, where are we at he said no we have restarted this and we have restarted this and and so then we got the power back up within about two and a half hours so it was close uh because if you get the four you're that's it game over so it was terrible so anyway we recovered the power but then unfortunately it was about 10 hours later uh, we had in one of the in line five, this was the biggest line at the time before line six, we had what's called an open circuit. So one of the pots had leaked. Okay, so the this liquid hot metal had leaked from the pot and it had burnt through the bus bar, which is basically the circuit, which is the power circuit around the line. So if you cut the circuit, you have a live electricity floating around the plant. So you have to cut the power again because people can die. So so then we ended up as a result of that, and this whole instability was caused from the uh, so I left the very next day. It was ten o'clock at night. I arrived at ten o'clock the next night in Bahrain. It was a Saturday night, um, and it was utter chaos. I mean, it was just again. If you picture that video, the size of those lines. Just imagine they're all basically shut down. There's smoke billowing everywhere. There's people running everywhere. It's it's this chaos. I mean, it's just it was it was it was a horrifying experience in terms of, and and it was it was tough because you know I had not been told everything uh they were not delivering all the bad news uh which was a bit upsetting to me um it was much worse than i had expected so it was it was bad uh so anyway that pot line went down this first time in our history we lost the pot line i'll give you an idea line five is about oh it's about seven hundred six seven hundred million in annual revenue okay so imagine poof that's gone um and to get it to recover um it took us about four months to recover it Uh, which at the time, actually, we did a great job recovering.
1: This is about the recovery. And to me, that's what's so relevant in the context of what's happened in COVID right now, because the way you act during the crisis sets the stage for how you deal in the time when the recovery can happen.
2: Right, right, exactly. And you have to, and the other thing uh, I'm a big believer in is direct communication. So, you know, you as the leader you, you know, you delivering the message is different than my, my VP or the manager or the superintendent. So we, I think we adapted pretty quickly. We were fairly resilient uh, given the situation Again, blackout. It never happened. Never had lost the pot line. I mean, these were, these were extreme, you know, again, it's like the pandemic. Right? We shut down the U.S. economy for the first time. I mean
1: well, these that's, are- that's why the, the metaphor was so apt. And the interesting thing, Tim, it's not like the process on line six stopped. You didn't have the opportunity to say, well, because I have the crisis to deal with, everything else has to stop. That had to, uh, the rest of the lines had to keep going.
2: Right, right, right. And so at this point, you have the strain of, okay, you're recovering all the other lines, which they also had to be brought back to normal stability, which took some time. You have line six, which is, you know, kind of halfway-ish through construction. Uh, we still had a little bit more to do, but um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it put a tremendous strain on the organization because, you know, imagine we have four months of basically starting a pot line, you know, which is something in, in your industry, you do that every 10 to 15 years. You don't have this skill set laying around uh, because these are huge investments. You know, you do it every 10 to 15 years and you upgrade your facilities. So, so don't no, put a tremendous strain on the organization, but.
1: Um, you know, Tim, I have to tell you that even, I hadn't made this connection w- w- until you just said that, but if you think about kind of like SARS, you know, early 2000s, right? There was a a small body of people who had the knowledge who were firsthand who dealt with that pandemic, right? But uh, uh, in terms of being able to um, quickly flip a switch and say, well, what can we learn from those people? It took time to be able to derive, what can we learn from the past virus uh, pandemics that have spread and be able to apply those lessons? And so I I think this whole idea of being prepared in advance, you know, it's, it's not lost on anybody listening now, but it's easy to get lulled into complacency over time and forget. Let me pivot from this piece. So the, you, you managed through this crisis. Um, what's the biggest takeaway for our listeners that relates to how you adapted to this crisis? And what can our listeners learn from this as it relates to this post-pandemic environment we're moving into? <laughs>
2: I mean, I think from the crisis, again, one about communication, I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. It's, you know, you got to communicate, 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 uh, and over-communicate, uh, because, you know, in these times of crisis, people want information, and, and if you don't give it to them, then the rumor mill just goes wild, and and, and if we, as we've seen, particularly with the pandemic, like you look at social media, and the power of the social media, and what flows, and what's this, and what's that, and Trump said this, and we heard about a new vaccine and this is going to happen. And um, So you've got to communicate a lot, you know, early and often, I would say. Um, also, again, the bad news, you know, you, you're you in these crisis situations. Everybody's got it. You got to get all the, the data on the table. You got to have the facts. You know, people who are making decisions can't make good decisions if they're not given good data. And so in terms of, you know, even as, as bad as it may be and you're afraid you're going to get fired or you're going to get punished or something like that. You got to have that level of trust that the, those things are are delivered. So so that's critical. I mean, in the age of the, the pandemic, I think you have to be positive. Uh, I'm a big believer in being positive. So one of my uh, the sayings I like to use, it's a, it's a Colin Powell, General Colin Powell. It's a perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. So you have to be positive. You know, and if you're positive, your people will be positive. If you're negative, your people will be
1: so as we get ready to wrap up, Tim, I know you do a lot of work with young people. You're, you're an adjunct professor, um, so both at doing work at Susquehanna and, and helping in your, your alma mater um, relative to your MBA at, at Vanderbilt. Um, when you think about young people, and I mean anyone who's students, college age, MBA, uh, what would you say is the most important skill, based on your experience, that people should be learning or improving on today as we move forward in this uh, economy that people need to adapt with.
2: I mean, it's very interesting you say this to me because, okay, I taught in the spring for the first time here. So I had a class of 16 and the class that I teach, it's called the CEO challenge. Um, so my advice, okay, one, okay, we talked a lot about the reading. I really think you need to read. Um, and you gotta, it's not just in the classroom, uh, get into the habit of reading. There's a great book called The Power of Habit, which was also recommended by Mark to yes. me. One of my favorite books, um, and about the building of habits and successful habits, as well as the Stephen Covey, the you know the seven highly uh, effective habits of, of successful people. But
0: um, but just get
2: into that habit of reading. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be work. It shouldn't be oh I have to do it because of class. You read whatever you want, but just get into the habit of reading. Okay, when you get into the workplace, uh, I think a very important one, which we miss a lot, is listening. Uh, I think we're all so busy. We all like to talk over one another or we have social media. And I think that ability to listen, uh, particularly as you move up the chain, up the ladder. But again, that, that listening, it's, it's a very critical thing. There's a, there's a nice phrase I read, it was one of the books I read recently, I think it was uh, called Thanks for the Feedback, and it said, are you listening to uh, reply or are you listening to understand? okay so listen to reply means I'm ready I'm gonna argue with you and as soon as you're done talking I'm gonna argue back or are you really sitting there and listening to the person so are you listening to reply or are you listening to understand because I don't think we do a lot of listening to understand unfortunately in our world today Um, so I think those are very important and my last piece of advice is you need to work hard and don't expect bonuses and benefits and flex time and all these things uh, you know, our society and this job market is going to be a disaster. It's going, I think it's going to take years for us to recover from this. It's not going to be a normal situation. And I think it's, you know, one thing I saw with the younger generation, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but, you know, their expectations of what they should get at a very young age are very high. Uh, I can tell you when I came out of the workforce, you told me to sweep the floor, I swept the floor. I mean, it was, you know, so in that, that mindset of, hey, I'm going to work hard and doing what's in the best interest of the company is in my best interest versus, hey, you know, what's my uh, benefit structure this year? Do I get flex time after one year? And do I get this bonus or best after? You know, I mean, again, we're all in for benefits, don't get me wrong. But I think the people that really work hard are the ones that are going to get those opportunities and and, and promotions that you want. So, you know, work hard and don't always think about what's in it for you. If it's it's in the best interest of the company, it's also in your own best interest.
1: Well, that last one, I think there's no question that when the history books are written, this will have been a reset on such a massive global scale in terms of rethinking work. And, you know, if you think about for most people, work is a third of their life. Sleep is a third of their life, right? So it's a big part of your life. And and if it's that much effort to push yourself to go the extra mile, you might be wondering, are you in the right form of work? Because- uh, You know, that's just the reality of it. Most, If you can't find something to love about what you're doing, then you might want to rethink it, and uh, now would probably be a good time. So, Tim, there's so much here. Uh, There's so many different ways. I know you're already starting to work with companies. You've got CEOs. You've got people who are reaching out to you to learn from this experience. I know you had a whole speaking tour booked all over uh, the world, really, uh, pre-COVID, and um, now all of that is being adapted. if people want to learn more about you and be able to reach out to hear more about the story and how you might be able to help them, what's the best way to do that? Sure.
2: I mean, the easiest way would be, okay, email. So my email is tim at card, C-A-R-D, virtues, V-I-R-T-U-S, dot com. One word, card virtues. And then I also have a website. Okay, I recently launched a website. So it's uh, www.cardvirtues.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, uh, another advice I took from Mark. Mark's a big LinkedIn guy, so I, I, he advised me to do LinkedIn. So, but again, I'm, I'm very quick on email, but again, email, the website, LinkedIn, um, I'm happy. And if you have any questions or whatever, just you know, please forward them, I'm happy to you know, follow up on anything. It doesn't have to be an official uh, consulting arrangement.
1: There are so many elements to this. The one that may be of most interest to many of our listeners is this ability to help install a learning culture that coincidentally, McKinsey says in a recent uh, report they've just published that one of the keys to resilience, to making sure you don't get knocked out when a pandemic like this happens. And who knows what happens if it comes again in the fall is having Definitely. learning culture. You built the learning culture. And I think that may be where some of the questions come from.
2: No, and I think when you said this final point on the learning culture in most of the businesses today, you know, how do you differentiate yourself when I mean, you look at the products we sell or what we make? at the end of the day, it's the people that make the business, right? I mean, your competitive advantage is your people and your good people, you want them to stay, you need to train and develop them. It's not, it's not about pay and bonuses. Okay, that's, it's kind of a given by industry, right?
1: So, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? It's your people. Well, there's a reason why, um, and I'm gonna put the link, there's a reason why Harvard Business Review, Harvard Business School, I should say, um, turned this into a case study and they turn it into a case study before COVID-19 happened. But I think there are huge lessons and huge implications for the concept of building an organization. You had your own pandemic-like experience experience with what you've described here with Line 5. You had a recovery from that, and um, the the company has continued to thrive even as you've moved on from being the, the CEO because a lot of this has been built into the organization. So ultimately, I think for business leaders, that's the ultimate uh, legacy is to know that you've helped create a culture that can keep adapting over time. So, Tim, with that, uh, thank you so much for joining this uh, podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll be continuing this conversation and love to
0: have you on again in the future. All right. Thank you, Mark. appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Adapters Advantage, available on all major podcast platforms. Make sure you visit our website, alego.com, where you can subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you liked this show, you might want to check out our virtual training kit to learn how to keep a remote team running at full speed. Go to allego.com slash virtual to download your kit today. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. And don't forget, one new idea can change your life.